This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. You know, we live in a time when we're both inundated with information and we tend to read the information that already reinforces our beliefs. Today's conversation with Dr. Bjorn Lomberg is a chance to reconsider that and look at perhaps other views. Given the urgency of climate change, it's also one of today's most polarizing issues. I spoke to Dr. Longberg, who is an academic and a president of the think tank Copenhagen Consensus. He's well known for his research on global warming and alarmism. I was interested in hearing more about his stance on climate change and how it's evolved over the years. We discuss a number of topics. We look at his opinion on the efficacy of global warming as a rhetorical appeal and how this plays into generational paranoia as well as ways over-worrying about certain problems leads to under-worrying about other problems. Our main objective is to make the future better through innovation, and it's the responsibility of wealthy countries to make sure the threatened areas have the resources they need so that they can weather any crisis they might be faced with. Please do sit through this conversation. I think that Dr. Lomborg's a brilliant guy, and I appreciate him being on this. Hear me okay? I hear you, yes, which is an important part of a podcast. Oh, I, no, <laughs> it's, it's certainly not the most important. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, we're in good shape. So, you know, I'm really interested in your road to becoming an optimist, if you consider yourself an optimist. Um, I know you've probably talked about your background a million times, but, you know, it's, it must be an interesting path to get to seeing the world in the potential of being a better place rather than seeing the world as being a disastrous place. Yeah. So thanks a lot. It's great to be here, uh, Matt. And, and, and I, I don't think of myself as much of a, an optimist as a realist. Uh, so I, I, you know, if, if things were really bad, we should probably know uh, because it'd probably be a good idea to be able to prepare for that. But likewise, if it's actually true that on most parameters, the world is just becoming a much, much better place, we should know. And of course, especially young people today ought to know Um there's you know, ample evidence that show that people are scared witless from a lot of different things, mostly on climate change. Uh, this, this idea that you know, 60% of the OECD now believes that it's likely or very likely that humanity won't survive global warming. That's just, that's just crazy. This is not what the UN climate panel is telling us at all. They're telling us global warming is a problem. We'll be slightly less, much better off by the end of the century because of climate change. That makes it a problem. It's by no means the end of the world. So I, I think the, the the fundamental point here is to say it's about being rational. And it so happens to be that rational show you that overall things are getting much, much better. Now, you asked me about what's sort of my my travel from 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 uh, here to uh, from there to here. Uh, so I used to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a member carrying a Greenpeace member and, you know, sort of your, your average urban uh, left-wing worried uh, uh, kind of guy. I, I wrote a, 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 a letter to the editor uh, telling, you know, back in the 90s about how terrible global warming is going to be. And of course, all the new newspapers picked it out later when I then actually did my, 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 my whole book. So, so I wasn't one of those, you know, uh, guys out in a rubber boat in Greenpeace, but I was, I was like, I think most people used to be, and probably, you know, on, on steroids, what a lot of young people are today, uh, just worried about the future and worried about how things seem to be crumbling around us and how everything is getting worse and how we seem to be stuck in a lot of bad places. 
Uh, and I read an interview with Julian Simon, an American economist, um, uh, in Wired magazine. And uh, you know, he basically said, look, things are getting better, not worse. And my sort of immediate reaction, look, I'm in a European. My, my immediate reaction was, oh, right-wing American propaganda, right? I mean, I was just like, yeah, sure. But he said one thing that really bothered me. He said, go check the data. Uh, and, you know, that was what I, I taught statistics at the University of Aarhus in Denmark. And, and that was uh, one of the points I kept telling my students, you know, you think you know the world, but you really just know the stuff that's right around you and what you typically hear on media. That is not the world. I mean, if, if it was, you wouldn't need statistics. You need to actually go out and look at the data. And so, you know, his challenge, uh, Julian Simon's challenge uh, to his readers and to the interviewer and, and, of course, to me, was go check the data. So I, I went and checked the data. I bought his book. I, I got some of my best students together and we you know, started checking. We were so sure he was wrong. But, you know, it'd be fun to show that he was wrong. And what, what we finally realized was he was not entirely right. I mean, there were some th- places where he was engaging in some wishful, wishful thinking, but mostly he was just right. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, most rich countries have become enormously cleaner. You know, we can actually bathe in our beaches. Uh, didn't used to be that way. Uh, air is much cleaner than, you know, in, in London, uh, the air is cleaner now than it's ever been since medieval times. And so on. It's not that there are no environmental problems, but this is not Armageddon. We're actually much, much better off in, in most areas. And one of the most obvious ways to point that out is that we just live much longer. In 1900, the average life expectancy in the world was 32 years. Right now, it's, it's 74, right? We have more than two lifetimes on this planet because we're much better off. That's for a lot of different reasons, and we can go into all those. But I think that's important, and there's no reason to believe that that's going to stop in, in the near or even mid-future. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if generationally, you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter, and, um, you know, when you point out that there is a generation that you know, has been raised in fear in, in a sense, you know, when you, when you talk about something as drastic as extinction, um, it's hard to you know, think, you know, it's, it's hard to cope with, you know, normal growing up, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Um, at the same time, there's something about a generation that wants to take action and do something of value uh, for future generations. Uh, and, you know, is there, what, what do we get out of a, a change of mindset from one that is, you know, focused on a, a, a deep concern for, you know, the environment because of the fear and alarmist fear of extinction? How do we get to something that is useful and positive for a generation? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have the complete answer to that because that's basically what my life story has been all about. I'm going to give you a, a few pointers at least. So first of all, I think the the uh, uh, the extinction fear is, is a great ploy, right? Because obviously, if climate change is a meteor hurtling towards Earth and we're all going to be extinct in 12 years or whatever the number is just today, uh, then clearly we should drop everything else and we should just focus on this, right? I mean, we should just, uh, you know, not care about any other issue and just, you know, focus on getting Bruce Willis and, and the whole team up there and, and bomb this thing to, to oblivion. Uh, and, and, and 
I think it is mostly in that sense that it's become an incredibly useful rhetorical phrase, but that has sort of taken over and make people believe that this is what the science actually shows. Um, so when you look at the economics that have tried to sort of instantiate what are all the problems with climate change, you know, take, for instance, heat deaths. We're going to see more heat deaths uh, compared to what otherwise would be there. Uh, but remember, we're also going to see fewer cold deaths. And cold deaths actually outweigh heat deaths almost everywhere on the planet. Uh, so right now we estimate there's about half a million people that die from heat every year. And there's about 4.5 million people that die from cold every year. Uh, so what's actually happened over the last 20 years, for instance, is that we've seen an increase in the number of people dying from heat uh, to the tune of 116,000 extra people every year. Uh, but every year we see 283,000 fewer people dying from cold. You need to remember both of these things. And of course, you need to add up all these other things. When the economists do this, and I'm not claiming that this is perfect in any way, but it's the best that we have. This is what the only climate economist to win the Nobel Prize, uh, William Nordhaus, estimates, is if we don't do anything about climate towards the end of the century, it will be the equivalent damage when you add up all the positive and negatives, and there are more negatives than positives, that's why it's a problem, then it becomes about a reduction in GDP of about 4%. This is not mostly in GDP because most of these are non-market effects. So it's the equivalent of what it would feel like to be about 4% less well off by the end of the century. Now, remember, the UN also estimate that each one of us will be much, much richer by the end of the century, especially in the developing world. Uh, so the standard scenario that generates these damages from climate change also assume that each person on the planet, and this is again UN estimates, will be about 450% as rich as he or she is today. So we'll be 450% as rich, but because we'll feel like we're 4% less well off, we'll actually only feel like we're 434% as rich. Yes, that's a problem. No, it's not the end of the, of the world. And that's, of course, the point that we need to get to your daughter and everybody else. Look, this is a problem. We'd rather have a world that was 450% as rich than one that's only 434% as rich. But that's not the end of the world if we're feeling slightly less, much better off. The second part of this is to recognize that if you over-worry about some things, for instance, over-worry about climate change, it inevitably means you under-worry about a lot of other things. And what you see is not only on unenvironmental things, but sorry, not environmental things, but even in environmental things, you know, everybody else, when you talk about biodiversity, when you talk about preserving nature or, or anything else, they complain of the fact that uh, climate change sort of sucks out all the oxygen. Nobody cares about all these other things except for their climate impact. And that's terrible for environment. But of course, it's also terrible when most people rightly point out that climate change is going to mostly affect poor people. It's not mostly going to be about rich people in rich countries. It's going to be about poor people who are going to be more challenged by the end of the century because of global warming. But the important part is to remember, poor people are challenged by almost everything. It sucks to be poor. And so in some ways, it's amazing that we're saying, oh my God, poor people in 100 years are going to be worse off because of climate change. So we should do something about climate change instead of thinking about well, maybe we should stop making them or having them be poor. Maybe we should help lift them out of poverty by better education, by more medicine, by you know, more food, uh, by better trade relationships and so on. There's a lot of other ways that we could lift a lot of people out of poverty 
and thereby actually making them much more resilient to all the other challenges that the world throws at them. You know, their kids wouldn't die from easily curable infectious disease and so on, but also from climate change. This is the dual challenge. Get people to realize and get your daughter to realize that yes, climate is a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. And if you over worry about climate change, you under worry about all these other issues. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting because there is, there's a part of me that cert, that does worry about this wealth inequality and how, who suffers from this, you know, is it Bangladesh? Is it, you know, the situation in Antigua, you know, there, there are things that if you're underwater or you're, you know, if you're truly underwater, <laughs> then there's not a, a, a lot that education even does for you, except for to say that you shouldn't be there. Perhaps I totally get your point that if funding all goes to one thing, or if the energy of a population and a generation goes to one thing, others will be missed. I, I just want to. I, I just want to get hold of that because I sure, think this. Please. We're, we're uh, you know, that you're going to be underwater. That's obviously that's a little bit sort of the local version of we're all going to be extinct. That if if you're underwater, then clearly nothing else matters. But in reality, of course, just remember. Right now, Bangladesh has more territory than, than they've had since uh, the 1950s because they're actually fairly rich and they know how to deal with these things. There's also, you know, there was an earthquake in the Himalayas in 1953, I believe, uh, that also led to a lot more um, uh, debris coming down uh, their main rivers. And that's one of the reasons why they actually have more land now than, rather than less, despite the fact that sea levels are rising. This is also true for all of the uh, Pacific islands that you hear about, Tuvalu, Micronesia, those kinds of places, they have more area, not less. Why? Because coral reef islands are actually natural habitats that are mostly made by lots of wave action breaking up coral, washing up on the shore. So you have two competing uh, effects. One is that sea levels are rising because of global warming, and that leads to less land. But you also have the secretion from more cor dead coral reef that is a natural process. And so far, that has actually outcompeted uh, the extra sea level rise. So these are not places that are in immediate danger of, of drowning. Uh, and, and apart from that, of course, you can also actually reclaim land. Remember, the Maldives have just, you know, put up a whole new international airport. Good for them, but you know, let's not believe the idea that they're immediately in danger of being flooded. But it's much, much more the conversation uh, around the idea of saying, if you're poor, yes, then you're really vulnerable to many of these things. But if you're rich, you have resilience. This is why sea level rise is really not a big issue for Holland. I'm not saying it's no issue for them, but remember 40% of the, uh, the, the country is below sea level. And when you go there, it's not like you're thinking, oh, my God, I could be inundated at any moment. They know how to do this, and they will know to, how to do this in many centuries to come. If you fly into Schiphol in Amsterdam, which is the world's 14th largest airport, uh, they uh, you know, proudly advertise on their website, they're the only major airport in the world that used to be uh, seen for a major naval battle. Uh, you know, it, it just boggles the mind what you can actually do. And that's, of course, why if you're rich, we will fix most of these problems. I'm not saying this is absolutely no problem. I'm not saying we shouldn't care. But these, oh, but you're going to be underwater, so that's going to be the only thing that is, is simply an exaggeration that's not going to be true for almost anywhere on the planet. So there's, there's an interesting way then to redirect the 
concern to be able to have technological solutions for any country, then it, it becomes a responsibility of wealthy countries and wealthy people by comparison. I mean, I'm saying, in, you know, anybody in, the, in, in a country that can direct their attention, there are interesting technological solutions to these problems. And that, that becomes a certainly a more exciting challenge um, and one that is less dreary and than one that just says we are destined for extinction. You know? and, and also, re- just remember, even on its own logic, there is something amazingly weird about the whole conversation of saying, so, yeah, there's going to be more heat wave deaths and there are going to be fewer cold wave deaths in the future because of global warming. And then people are somehow saying, ah, but because of the uh, uh, the heat dome in the U.S., what we need to do is to make sure that in the future, we reduce temperature rises by cutting carbon emissions a lot. Now, cutting carbon emissions a lot is a huge and costly endeavor because it basically means that we have to restrict what funds and powers most of our nations, most of everything you like about society. So it gives you food and heat and cold and, and transportation that makes it possible for us to you know, talk across a, 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 a continent and ocean and so on. But the fundamental point here is to say, even if you do all these things, you're still going to leave people hotter by the end of the century, but slightly less hotter. I, I don't understand the idea of saying, I'm yeah. going to help the future by making sure that it becomes slightly less, much worse off. Rather, and more unpleasant in the moment <laughs> and more unpleasant it, way to it, live. But instead of actually focusing on making sure that these people are much better off in all of their respects, right? So it's about making sure that you have access to air conditioning, that you have access to resources so that you can actually live in these areas. And of course, at the same time, realizing that for most of humanity, the challenge is not heat. The challenge is surviving cold. Uh, and this is true even in most of sub-Saharan Africa, you know, where you would imagine that uh, most people are just challenged by enormous amounts of heat. But the truth is, and this is a, a new estimate from the Lancet, uh, one of the most prestigious uh, journals in the world, mm-hmm. uh, they basically estimate that even in sub-Saharan Africa, many more people die from cold. And if you go there, what you find is that, sure, it's hot in the daytime, but sometimes it gets incredibly cold and they have no insulation and you're basically stuck. And what happens is you're, you get cold. It's hard to keep warm. You have to burn you know, uh, typically dung or cardboard just to keep a little hot. That, that's not true for tourists that go there. Uh, but you know, uh, for generalized and what you have a hard time keeping your body temperature, the uh, body restricts the flow to your uh, outward organs. And we know that this means that you get a higher uh, uh, blood pressure and that leads routinely to more people dying. This is not rocket science. And again, it seems like we're confident the only way to help people in 80 years suffering from heat waves is to not drive my SUV today. Whereas the right answer is no, make sure that these people are rich, wealthy, and resilient. Yeah, I, I, I do think that even if somebody completely disagrees with you and feels that, you know, what you're doing is, you know, I'm sure you have plenty of critics, oh, God, um, yes. but even if they completely disagree with you, the idea of reducing emissions to make a difference seems so misguided and uh, psychologically misguided as well. 
Um, you know, if if climate change really is a huge problem, let's say that you're, you know, that, that everything you've said is wrong, which I'm not saying at all, hmm. still find a solution then that is technological to get over it, not re, not do something that we know is not going to make a huge difference. Matt, I'd, I'd, I'd love that you were right, but I actually think, you know, if you look at what almost all governments say, uh, you know, certainly what Biden, the EU, many others are saying it is exactly this. The, our main objective to make the future better is to cut our emissions now. And unfortunately, that's an incredibly costly way of making no, almost no impact in 100 years. So I did this, you know, uh, uh, you know about the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, was passed uh, recently and which most people uh, probably correctly, I think, uh, consider a climate act mostly. Uh, that's certainly how it's being sold by a lot of leading Democrats. And what it basically does, if you take their own estimates of how much it's going to cut carbon emissions, it's going to reduce temperatures by the end of the century by less than 0.026 degrees Fahrenheit and possibly as little as 0.0009 degrees Fahrenheit. This is just not going to be noticeable even in 100 years. And, and this is what's so depressing that we're talking about stuff They'll have you know, significant costs, not you know, the kind of send us all to the poorhouse, but significant costs, and it'll do virtually nothing. This is where we need to have a conversation about, are we really just trying to make ourselves feel good? Because if this is just, you know, if we're just buying you know, candles and feel good ex experiences, hey, maybe that's fine. And maybe that's worthwhile if you're, if you're a rich American. But let's not pretend that we're actually doing real good in the world. Yeah, I agree completely. What What is your feeling on um, geoengineering and trying, you know, or other technological things that I, I let's make the assumption that some will suffer from climate change um, and that there might be ways either it's, you know, dealing with things the way that Amsterdam has or that it's uh, more technological like geoengineering experience. Do you, do you have any opinions on it? Well, I certainly do. And and I actually also have, a, so we had a conference of, of more than 50 of the world's top climate economists and three Nobel laureates where we exactly asked that question, how do you spend money and actually do the most good for climate? And, and what they found was by far the best long-term solution is to invest much more in research and development in green energy. So if you just think about this, you know, right now, uh, third generation nuclear power is fairly expensive. It's hard to do. You know, you need a lot of uh, licensing and so on, which is why most places in the rich world, at least, it becomes fantastically expensive. Uh, Bill Gates and many others are now arguing, well, fourth generation nuclear, if you could, you know, turn out lots and lots of cheap, simple, factory produced uh, m mini nuclear power plants. It's, it's amazingly fun, and how cool would this be if it worked? Their argument is it's going to be incredibly cheap, incredibly safe, it's going to be inherently safe, and it could basically power humanity for almost no money. Look, we should definitely look at this. Uh, I'm not saying this is actually the truth, because remember, this was also what we were told about the first, second, and third generation of nuclear power, and it didn't quite happen. So let's, let's certainly spend money to see if this could happen. But the trick here is to remember, there are lots of these potential breakthrough technologies, and we really just need one of them to work. So I don't think we should come up and say, oh, it's fourth generation that's going to uh, nuclear that's going to save us all. Uh, fusion, obviously, is this you know holy grail. Imagine if we could actually have sort of sustainable sun on the planet and just you know have solar power all the time. Or some other solution. There are lots of these. Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000, he has, he has this idea of putting out 
uh, engineered uh, algae on the ocean surfaces, and they would basically suck up solar uh, sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Then we'd harvest, uh, you know, we'd have our Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the sequestration, a lot of people are working on. It's exciting stuff. But, well, th- but this is better than sequestration because it would actually produce oil that oh. was CO2 neutral. So we could harvest our oil out in the ocean surface. It'd be CO2 neutral because it just sucked up the CO2 on the ocean surface. And we could keep our entire fossil fuel structure and solve all the global warming. I'm not saying any one of these solutions are going to be the workable outcome. I, I think that'd be ridiculous for us to be able to predict the future of technology. But the point is, if we got one such technology, we'd be done. So we should be focusing our investment in getting a lot of innovation. There's underinvestment in innovation because it's really hard to recoup uh, all your private benefits in, uh, uh, you know, basically in patents that'll eventually run out. And then, you know, a lot of other people are going to come around and do a lot of good stuff. So there's much more social benefit than private benefit. That's why it makes sense for public to invest in innovation, not in subsidies, but innovation. That's the way we're going to fix climate change. And then, and sorry, just on the uh, uh, on the geoengineering, I don't know if your listeners know, but you know, basically, uh, do like the uh, uh, volcanoes. You know, you uh, uh, they occasionally spew out lots and lots of sulfur dioxide up in the stratosphere. It, it, it's sort of almost a haze around the world, and that actually reduces it's like sunglasses for the planet. It reduces temperatures a little bit. People are arguing, why don't we try to do that uh, artificially? And so, basically, mimic. Uh, uh, volcanoes, and there are also other and possibly even smarter ways to do that. It would be fantastically cheap and could potentially solve all of global warming. Uh, we should absolutely look into it, but we're not there where we should actually deploy it. Remember, we could possibly deploy this for you know the cost of ten billion dollars to fix all of climate change, which is like you know three or four orders of magnitude cheaper than anything else we're talking about. Uh, and, and this also means that it's potentially possible that you could just imagine a single slightly crazy billionaire who just go ahead and do it. We'd probably want to look into whether this is a good idea before someone does it, uh, because there's potentially bad side effects. So we'd certainly want to look into it, but we shouldn't be deploying it just yet. Yeah, no, this is sort of a side note on that. We're working on um, something of pu- putting um, a material called gallium oxide on CubeSats for doing climate modeling so you can see the earth energy imbalance um, where you generally measure just from what comes in, not what goes out. And if you're looking at old satellites, you know, they degrade and it takes 10 years to model. So um, what I was excited about this is that not only you get a better model of what's going on on the planet, but this you could perhaps do small geoengineering experiments and see how it affects things far away without actually turning it on or off. But yes. we'll see. You know, yeah, I mean, no, I'll look forward to hear what, what those the are. The, I mean, those are the, if and, you know, certainly we will get absolutely no money from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act to do something no. like this. No. I, I, and I, I get your point completely. What if you took the amount of money that is being spent for carbon reduction and pr- put it towards technology experiments that might actually make a difference? Yeah, because you know, the fundamental point here is we're not going to solve global warming by having a few rich Americans and Europeans saying, oh, we want to you know, give up a little bit of our welfare to solve a tiny part of global warming. Remember, right now, you, know, uh, you can also see me. I'm actually sitting in a lot of clothing because Europe is going to be incredibly cold this summer, uh, this winter, right? Uh, and and it's going to suck. And we're not. We're voting with our feet and everything else and showing we're not actually willing to cut all of our uh, emissions 
in order to fix climate change. We'd actually like to be comfortable as well. So yeah, we're seeing that with this Ukraine situation. Yes, that, you exactly. know, we'll, you just we'll cut down trees if we have to, anything to get the energy so exactly. that we stay warm. So, so fundamentally, we're not going to solve this by a few well-meaning rich Americans and Europeans. We need to get everybody else on board. That's the Chinese, the Indians, Africa, rest of Southeast Asia. And that's only going to happen if you get technology that's cheap enough. If you get technology that's cheap, you'll have solved this problem. If you don't, you will not solve this. It's really not harder than that. And that's why innovation is the only long-term strategy to fix this. Yeah, what I really am getting from all of this, and I guess it's obvious if anybody listens, uh, is that you can't, either a society or an individual can't be focused on everything. And the more that we direct energy towards something that is not going to make much of a difference, the less we're going to do that will make a difference, whether it's helping the poor or whether it's some type of technological solution. And and just to to round that off, uh, my day job is actually not criticizing uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and other things. Uh, That's just, you know, where most of the interest certainly in a rich world is. Uh, I actually work with a think tank called the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, where we work with more than 300 of the world's top economists and seven Nobel laureates in trying to find out where are the best investments? Where do you actually spend a dollar and do a lot of good? It turns out that these are simple things. And when you think about it, it's not, you know, rocket science. Um, Tuberculosis, the world's leading infectious disease killer, except for COVID for two years. One and a half million people die from tuberculosis every year. Why are we not scared witless of this? Why are we not talking about this all the time? Because we fixed it in the rich world a, a century ago. Right. It used to kill lots and lots of people. Every famous person you remember from the 1800s, there's yeah, a good right. chance that person died from tuberculosis. But we don't care anymore. Because as as we don't have it. We don't yeah, pay any attention to it. We don't have it. But one and a half million people die from it every year. And we know how to fix it very, very cheaply. There's you know drugs. There's testing methods. And we could basically save everyone for a couple of billion dollars every year. Why are we not doing that? I would argue to a large extent because we're focused on something else. And this list goes on. It's not just TB. It's malaria. It's lack of food. It's lack of good education. All these simple things. And so my point is simply to say, not only are we over-worrying about climate change in a way that makes us spend money really badly and not actually fix climate change, we also under-worry about all the other things that would not only help, you know, imagine right now there is a woman in Bangladesh or somewhere that's worried about her kids are not going to make it through the night. She's literally worried that they're going to die from tuberculosis, malaria, something else that we could have saved her, you know, for a couple of dollars. Why are we so concerned about her, de- uh, you know, her kids, if they survive, their granddaughters in 100 years instead of actually making sure that these kids survive tonight? And the second thing is we need to do this effectively. And if we do so, her kids will get better educated, they'll survive, they'll actually do much better, and they will become some of those guys that will fix a lot of the problems in the world. So, you know, these are things that are that are in some ways connected. We should stop worrying so much about climate change. We should get your daughter out of the anxiety if she has that. But we should say, yes, it's one of the many problems we need to fix. Let's fix it smartly and cheaply and effectively. And that will leave us attention and money to also fix all the other problems in the world. Yeah, there's this real question of how you deal with something that is a long-term problem versus a kind of war-like, um, you know, uh, gathering of the troops to deal with something right now, as you're, as you're mentioning, you know, I, I, 
we saw this with COVID. You get to a vaccine quickly. What are you trying? You know, this this is a, a huge necessity. And these kinds of things are happening all around the world at any given time. Um, and and we're not we're not mobilizing in the same way because it hasn't. I, I think in some sense. If things happen really quickly, as with COVID, and also hit rich people, mind you, yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's quite easy to actually get a lot of people and a lot of funding. Uh, but if they don't hit, which is the problem with climate change, they don't hit quickly, they hit very slowly. But it's also true for you know tuberculosis and lack of learning and all these other things. They're sort of old, boring stories that are happening slowly over time. We're bad at doing all of those. But what's happened is that we've sort of catastrophized climate to the point where there's a hurricane. Oh, it's because of global warming. Oh, there's a you know, heat wave is because of global warming. Everything is because of global warming. And that, of course, makes you know, kids scared and makes us unable to make good decisions. And at the same time, take away from all the other things we should be focusing on. Right. Yeah, I get that. It's, it, 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 it is definitely a, a frustration when you start moving away from what I mean, I, you know, I had Peter Singer on this podcast and, you know, there's the one thing that Peter always makes one realize is that, you know, we have to extend this circle of empathy outside of our own near term issues. Uh, and I, it meant a lot to me to, to, to hear Peter on this podcast. And this kind of this kind of applies. I think everything yep. you're saying, you know, and, and, and I think the, the, the strong part about what I, I try to do with my whole group here at the Copenhagen consensus is that it, it's not, you know, this sort of wishy-washy, oh, we need to, you know, bring everything into it. It's simply cold-hearted economics is about cost and benefits, but making sure we took look at all the costs and we look at all the benefits. So when we look at a lot of the climate policies that are being done right now, we'll end up spending lots of money. And do fairly little good. So, you know, the Paris Agreement, uh, it's estimated that for every dollar we spend, we will achieve about 11 cents of reduction in climate damages. So you will do some good, but you're basically wasting 89 cents of every dollar. That's bad politics. Uh, well, no, it's actually not bad politics. It's good politics. We, it's good politics. politics. <laughs> it's, it's bad rationality. Uh, and, and, and likewise, then we look at, you know, if you spend a dollar on TB, how much will you good do in, in terms of not having kids die, not having parents die, not having better production, having more opportunity in the future and so on? It turns out that, you know, every dollar spent will do $43 of good. That's a very concrete number. Suddenly you realize, oh, wait, we can actually do, you know, about, what, what is that, three or 400 times? I, I can't do this calculation in my head, uh, but a lot more good if we focus on TB first. This does not mean we should not do things for climate. So when you look at what's the cost-benefit ratio for uh, innovation, for instance, if we spent a truckload more on innovation, and remember that would still be much, much less than we're spending on the Inflation Reduction Act and all these other climate policies that are incredibly expensive across the world. If we stopped doing them, but spent a lot more on innovation, we could get most of the solution going right now and every dollar spent would avoid about $11 of climate damage. That's a great deal. That's one deal that the world should take. We would make the world much better off at fairly low cost. That's a great proposition. We need that sort of conversation. And I think that's really the, the thing that you know, we're hoping to contribute here. Yeah, I, I feel like you're kind of alone. Do you feel that way or do you feel <laughs> there's a community with you? So there's a lot of people. So there, there's two kinds of people, I think. There's, there's a lot of people who think, it makes a lot of sense to say, hey, guys, let's just cool this a little bit and have a conversation about where do we spend money 
well. Uh, so I think in the generalized sense, there's a lot of people who are with us. Uh, but institutionally, of course, almost everyone have been captured by this idea that we should be doing something about climate. So you know, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, you know, pretty much everyone are, are just constantly, and of course, uh, you know, uh, bureaucracies under Biden, bureaucracies in the EU and everywhere else have been sort of captured by this because there's lots of attention, lots of money. Uh, we're certainly slushing around about a trillion dollars a year on, on, on spending on actual green energy that's fairly expensive and does very little good. Uh, so clearly there's a lot of attention and opportunity here. And I think in that sense, yes, we're very alone because <laughs> there's, there's no way to make good money off of, of saying we're doing the wrong thing. You should be spending money on, on TB, uh, you know, unless you perhaps own a, a TB treatment. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you had a, a type of personalized medicine treatment, there could be a lot of yeah. money in it, to be honest. Well, I mean, you know, so, so the, the funny thing is, if you look at how people. So one of the problems with TB, one of the reasons why it's not actually been uh, fixed is you have the medicine. But you actually have to take it for almost a year or, you know, if you take good medicines, uh, half a year or even four months, you can compress it. If you if you think about how you deal when you get something, you know, you get an uh, influenza or something uh, and your doctor tells you you have to take medication for two weeks. A lot of people have a hard time, you know, once they stop, the they stop it, it as soon as they start feeling and, well. And you're fresh. You don't need to do yeah. anymore. Uh, but the reality is you really have to keep doing it because otherwise it comes back and possibly next time it'll be drug resistant. So, so it's really hard to get people to do this well. And that's one of the reasons why we have to invest in making sure people take their medications and make sure because otherwise they're going to transmit it to a lot of other people who will then be society's problem in one, two or five years. That's why this is harder than it just seems. And no, I don't think I can make, you know, great bucks off of this, but I do think societies would be better off. I'm certainly not suggesting you're after the money. No, 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 but but unfortunately, I don't think there's, there's, there's great bucks to be made by anyone in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear it. If you have a great idea. I mean, I'm worried about, you know, if, if we think about, mid or near near term problems infectious disease certainly is on our minds you know and mm. um, maybe the solution is a technological solution that doesn't require a year worth of treatment that is some type oh, of bioengineering oh God, yes. that could be and that would be a good place to focus our energy not to get rich but just because we're all going to be faced with potential pathogens that are going to affect society again with you know and dealing with tuberculosis where it's a problem is actually dealing with future problems for the rich world as well. Yes. Yes. I remember right when, uh, when COVID started back in 2020, um, uh, you know, when they're starting to talk about spending hundreds of billions of dollars and getting a vaccine and, uh, the, uh, the head of uh, stop TB, uh, she was like, what we've had tuberculosis for 2000 years yeah. and you know, we're spending nothing. I, I get that we want to spend it because it's on rich people. Uh, but well, maybe it was we, on everyone. Yes, I mean, also, you know, yes. millions of people died. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it on COVID, but we should do it for more things, and that would be a smart thing to do. Right. Well, biology is in an exciting place right yes. now where that is possible. Biology is also in a place where it can be dangerous. <laughs> you know. It, yes, you know, that's like, certainly a concern. Yeah. You know, the time horizons on climate change or are, let's say, 25 years, 50 years, 100 years for different types of uh, predictions of things happening. What are your big concerns 50 years out? Um, 
So I, I probably think we don't have a good handle in what's really going to be worrying. Um, so I don't know if you know the uh, um, Oxford University has been looking at, and a lot of people have been looking at what are sort of really existential risks for civilization. Yeah, Will McCaskill's and, you know, they, new book, for yes, instance, yes. on long-term uh, and, uh, Yes, Altruism. What is it? Altruism. Effective altruism. Effective altruism. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that was what I wanted to. Yeah, they they're very focused on this, and I think they're very correct in saying there's a lot of things that we don't worry about. I don't have a good handle on exactly how worrying this this is, but you know, the idea of AI, gray goo, uh, you know, those kinds of things that are much much more risky uh, for society. I, I think if we look through uh, our civilizational history. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of things where we said we worried about one thing and then suddenly, you know, something else entirely sideswiped us. Um, I find it interesting that while as, as COVID was sort of starting to spread through the world, uh, the World Economic Forum uh, held up uh, a survey back in 2020 and said, what are the most important challenges for the world in the next 10 years? And they basically said climate change. <laughs> and then everybody got sick with COVID. Uh, and in 2022, they did the same survey and they got the same result. It was climate change. And of course, that's when we just come out of a, uh, you know, a, a, the deadliest pandemic in 100 years. We have a, a recession, inflation, China, Russia. Uh, and and you got just got to... There's still nuclear bombs out there. Yeah. It, it just seems like people have no sense of what really is important. And, and, and that's why I, I would hesitate very much to answer your question, what's going to be incredibly important in 20 uh, in 50 years. But what we know from economics, and this is how most of the world works, is we're not going to be able to solve people's problems in 50 years. We, because mostly we have no good idea and handle on what those problems are going to be. What we do know is that we can make sure that we make people richer. That means that they're more likely to have resources to fix these problems and have more knowledge. That's how we typically left our kids to uh, to defend uh, the, in the future. We've left them richer and better educated. That means that they will have much better chance to fix whatever it is that they're going to be facing in, in 2072. So if we prioritize correctly, things will be much better in 50 years and follow a trend of becoming richer, having more, you know, greater longevity. It, they will certainly be better. I, th I think we should be careful about you know, promising how much better. Uh, I think fundamentally, if you look at the, the statistic I started out with, you know, we've gone from living 32 years on average to living 74 years on average. And it's not such that it's slowing down. Actually, every year you live on this planet, your life expectancy becomes about three to four months longer. We're simply except for the last couple of years where we actually except had a oh, oh god yes yeah I mean uh, obviously if you have COVID that's not going to be true but it is you know you're going to be back again that's that's basically because of if we don't have another pandemic sure. or we don't know how to deal with another pandemic which is a another sure potential and and, and look that's not an un, unreasonable sort of caveat but still it's important to recognize things are going to be much better on all accounts this is also what all of the UN scenarios are estimating into the future we're going to be much better off. We're going to live much longer. We're going to be much better educated. But yes, there are going to be problems. And it is possible that there's going to come something out of the blue that'll make things much, much worse. I think we should definitely be paying attention to those things, but it's not going to be climate change. And it's very likely that most of these things will be better approachable by more technology and more resilient societies. Right. 
in a sense, it's not bad then to be an alarmist. It's bad to be alarmist about things that um, can't, are not going to be solved in the way that is efficient. Well, I, I, I doubt that it's a good idea to be alarmist in general, just simply because it makes people. Well, and I mean, in, in January of in January of 2020, it would have been a good idea to be an alarmist about COVID. I've, I've, could we have done a lot more, possibly? Yes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Our, you know, our experience certainly isn't that uh, that. Oh, if you'd locked down societies much better, uh, we would have had very little COVID. It would have. Right. Been more, but, the, but there are other. There were other technological solutions. We saw that we did get to a vaccine fairly quickly. We could have probably gotten there if oh, sure. before COVID even existed. You know, Moderna had um, mRNA. Oh. Uh, you know, technologies for the last twelve years. You know, if we if we thought in a you know thinking in a ur- with urgency and acting okay, with yes. urgency, okay, I like that. Maybe uh, maybe alarmist isn't the right word. Urgent no, is I, maybe I, the right I, word. I think, but 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 again, I, I I don't think yeah, it was not panic people who who did this, but certainly we should have uh, have have had urgency. Uh, and and this is a whole other kettle of fish. So you know, the, uh, uh, there's a number of economists who've been writing about this. Um, if you have a very strong regulatory control, uh, but you know, you make sure you don't get bad drugs out, but it also means you make sure you don't get qu- good drugs out quickly. Uh, and so there's a there's a definite conversation, and I think we're uh, generally in society we have a tendency to say uh, I better cover my ass by saying you know I'm not going to recognize a drug anytime too soon. But there is such a thing as also too late in the sense that you are not saving enough people. We need to have more of a conversation about that. But that's a, that, you know, in, in some sense, it's a much, much smaller conversation still than the conversation that we have on climate change, where we constantly seem to be. But it perhaps shouldn't be. No, no. no. I mean, there's some interesting things. Um, you know, I, I, I very early on wanted to put uh, far UVC lighting. I wanted to... Uh, that, that doesn't damage the skin or the eyes in a certain wavelength um, to stop transmission so you could still be out. And now this is finally getting a lot of attention, N- nothing to do with me. I mean, it's just, uh, it's getting a lot of attention. And this is the kind of thing, if, if there are pathogens, what if just your rooms are safe from aerosolization yep. and spread? Um, yep. Like that's the no, kind I've of- I've heard about those things. And, and again, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, but, but Underlying this, I think it, it simply just emphasizes how it's very likely that the future will be one where we will have fixed a lot of things that we're thinking of as big problems today. And that's an amazing future. And we should encourage that future. And if we over worry about one thing and forget all the others, we're likely to make less of that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bjorn. I really appreciate this. And I, you know, I think your perspective needs to be heard by a lot of people as it already is. But I think, you know, it, uh, it, I, I would love for a generation to be able to direct their attention to urgency of issues without a existential fear of extinction from from anything. Um, I, I totally agree. And thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an important conversation. It's great to get this yeah. out there. Great. Thank you. Thank you.